is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Today's episode brings us to London, where Peter Fines speaks with us about getting to know one's own country, climate concerns and travel, and yes, Brexit. We also talk about his new book, Footnotes, a journey around Britain in the company of great writers. Peter was a publisher at Time Out for many years, where he produced hundreds of books and magazines. His new book, Footnotes, was shortlisted for the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards. So now, here is Peter Fines. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So we're here to talk about your newest book, Footnotes, A Journey Around Britain in the Company of Great Writers. But first, I want to say congratulations on your nomination for the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. So you had a, a long um, career in publishing. You were the publisher at Time Out for a number That's of years. Right. Yep. You published a number of books, notably Oak and Ash and Thorn. And, yes. And now your 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 new book uh, deals with uh, travel and writing. Um, could you walk us through the premise of your book? Sure. Um, well, it's very simple. What I wanted to do is follow uh, 12 authors, 12 dead authors around Britain, uh, so I've followed their journeys. I sort of steeped myself in their letters, their journals, their books, if they'd written them. And uh, I kind of patched together these 12 journeys of the authors. They're all dead. Some of them, like Gerald of Wales, was walking around Wales in 1188. Uh, he's the earliest. And the most recent is Beryl Bainbridge, the novelist, who went around England in 1983. So... Um, I've sort of patched together the 12 authors into one continuous loop. Um, that was the sort of main idea behind the book, is that I didn't want to have 12 um, individual journeys. I wanted to have kind of one major journey, so I've kind of stitched them together. It's rather like a relay, a baton in a relay race, or, mm-hmm. or, I, I, or the other analogy I used was like a snowball swelling as it rolls, gathering people and debris along the way. So I just wanted to, you know, patch this one journey together and... and once I'd had the idea, it further occurred to me that it might be quite nice if um, they followed the seven ages of man these, as a kind of thematic thematic idea. So um, I basically started with childhood and Enid Blyton in one part of Britain, and I finished with the death of Charles Dickens in London. So it kind of it's got a kind of overarching theme mm-hmm. in that way. In the beginning of the book, there is a map of the United Kingdom, and there are little arrow, arrows and stops. I guess the chapters I'm referring to the chapters in the book. Yes, uh, and so this is it's interesting. Did you uh, go on your journey in kind of one continuous uh, journey, or did you stop and? you know, go back home and pick it up. Yeah, I, I continuously, st- some of them uh, I continued straight on. Uh, Wales, for example, I did one great journey. But other, yeah, I kept sort of diving back to London where I live and then going back out again, sort of picking it up where I dropped it off. But um, I ended up, I actually didn't really write very much about London nor about uh, the southeast. I started in Dorset in, on the south coast, mm-hmm. which is where Enid Blyton, who I wanted to start with, 
uh, spent all her summer holidays. And then I kind of took it from there. And um, the baton was then passed to Wilkie Collins, who went into Cornwall and so on. Mm-hmm. How, how did you decide on which authors to write about? Well, it was slightly random, but there were some I definitely knew I wanted to have. I wanted to have Coleridge without a shadow of a doubt, and I ended up dropping him at the last minute. Uh, I wanted to have these amazing authors, two women writers from the turn of the 20th century called called Somerville and Ross. Um, and they write mostly about Ireland, but luckily they did a little travel journal around North Wales. Yeah. Um, I wanted to have Boswell and Johnson going around Scotland. Uh, I've always loved Dickens, so I wanted to kind of squeeze him in somehow. Uh, and others just sort of popped up as I went along. Um, J.B. Priestley, who travelled around England in the 1930s, um, was incredibly helpful because once I'd had this idea that I wanted the journey not to have any breaks, mm-hmm. uh, I could just sort of pick him up and then drop him and pick him up again. And then and then I was thrilled to find that my one of my favourite writers, Beryl Bainbridge, uh, the English novelist, had followed him. 50 years after he'd made his journey. So I was sort of following her, following him. So uh, some of these writers I knew well beforehand. Uh, one in particular, a woman called Eithel Cahoon, uh, I'd never even heard of, but um, she's a brilliant writer. So I was kind of, there was happy accidents as well as, as well as planning involved. I see. Uh, so you've mentioned some names with, you know, American audiences will know some of these names very, very well, uh, Coleridge and, and Dickens, uh, but some are kind of, well, even even new to me, um, uh, like Blyton and Wilkie Collins, like I haven't heard of these people uh, yes. before. Not that I I should have heard about them, but maybe it speaks to my ignorance more than anything. But you you mentioned dropping off Coldridge, and so this like the usual it makes me think about the fact that the usual suspects that we I guess expect to see in a book like this are, are not treated here, like Wordsworth, Blake, and and. Coleridge is dropped, and I'm curious to know why that why he was dropped. But yeah, Cole, this- Cole, I mean, it's partly because I had this this scheme to do this continuous loop, but also I, I needed to have well, I'd set myself the task of having a, a really a really good geographical spread, as well as a as a mm. historical spread. So I needed people from I couldn't get them from every century, but I wanted you know. Gerald of Wales from 1188 was my first. Right. And then, you know, I found I was overrun by Victorians. Um, <laughs> and then I saw Wilkie Collins was one because he, he's this um, Victorian novelist, friend of Charles Dickens, who soon after, when he was quite a young man, uh, traveled around Cornwall before there were any railways in Cornwall. So um, once I'd found that, I just had to have him because also he's a, he's a brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. And then I really wanted Dickens. So I was kind of overrun by these Victorian men. And uh, Coleridge was a bit too close in time to that. And also I'd written about Coleridge before in my previous book. So um, it was slightly random. Also, I, I, had, I put all these kind of strictures on myself. I, I decided I wanted six men and six women. So it became increasingly <laughs> difficult to squeeze people in who I wanted to squeeze. And I, I, I dropped, in fact, the original idea for the book came from um, following a man called William Cobbett around who had written um, something called Rural Rides, which is, again, in the Victorian times, he'd ridden a horse around parts of Britain and written about it in a very interesting way. So I started with him and then he ended up not being in it at all. Hmm. Um, I was really lucky, and I'm aware that American audiences are not familiar, for example, with Ina Blyton. Mm-hmm. She's probably the biggest-selling children's author of all time, and she was absolutely immense, but never 
quite made it. I mean, she made it in America, but not to the extent that she overwhelmed us over here. So I was actually really pleased to start my whole book with her. It was it was telling with this idea that it was going to start with childhood, and she wrote um, very childish books and very simplistic books, and from the nineteen twenties onwards. And she died in about nineteen sixty three, I think. Um, but for many years, she was. I mean, she wrote seven hundred and fifty books. She mm-hmm. was, you know, mm-hmm. huge, huge thing here and overseas, and um, really did influence the way many of us think about what Britain is. So I was. Um, she has a very um, simplistic. Uh, childlike view of of Britain being you know little villages and friend, friendly bobbies waving at you and uh, and that um, that has really influenced the way people think about what our country is. Um, she's also very suspicious of men with beards and, and foreigners. <laughs> so, Got to shave now, yeah. Got to shave now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious about that. Her, um, I, I didn't know about her, and so I looked her up. And yeah, you're right, absolutely prolific. Um, yeah, but. Also, this the story of her life, you know, very complicated, right? With her relationships with love interests, but also her her publisher. So here we have the story of this kind of, you know, everyone's favorite storyteller from childhood, yes. you know, with this kind of deep, somewhat dark, uh, troubled past to, you know, seize the world in, in such a way that you go and investigate how that world has changed, right? So you go to the place where she lived, and apparently she didn't yes. travel that much. She didn't travel very much at all. And that actually quite suited me because, as I say, I was trying to uh, re- recreate the seven ages of man. So I was um, starting with childhood and so it was appropriate. She didn't go very far, but she was enormously successful and unbelievably wealthy once she'd really got going. She was publishing in one year 70 books, if you can wow. imagine. She could write, she did these famous five books. She's best known for that, as well as a character called Noddy. Um, yeah, she would just churn them out. She could write these little novels in a couple of weeks. And um, I went down to Swanage, where she spent all her holidays. She went to America once and didn't much care for it, I have to tell you. <laughs> she, um, and then she had one cruise, I think, to Morocco. But other than that, she spent all her holidays in, in Swanage, in this little English village. Um, and it's charming. It's a, it's a lovely place, but it's very cut off and very insular, um, as well as having the most magnificent pubs and very friendly people. And a lot of people have moved there. It was interesting. I was talking to a lot of people there. They'd all or many, almost everyone I spoke to, had moved there from other parts of Britain. And they all had the same reason, which is that they didn't have to lock their front door when they went out. And uh, everyone was very friendly. And, you know, you could speak to people in the streets. And they were basically trying to recreate an Enid Blyton novel in their lives. Um, uh, So, you know, that... Yes, she kind of lived. She lived her brand. I think it was also I wrote about this. She she invented really for, for certainly the first children's author to promote her brand as much as she did her writing. So her brand was of this loving mother right. uh, with these two daughters and you know this husband and this idyllic life. And she ran clubs. I mean, she was extraordinary extraordinary woman. But but the reality of her life was quite different from that. And, and in fact. Um, one of her daughters wrote an absolutely excoriating book about her childhood. She said at one point, she writes in her book, 
age six or five, she she went down um, to see this woman in the hallway who used to give her her pocket money every Saturday, just like she'd pay her servants every Saturday. And it was only age five or six, she realized this woman in the hallway was her mother, <laughs> Eden Blyton. <laughs> so she had a wow. horrifying relationship with her mother, whereas the other daughter wrote a book saying her everything was absolutely wonderful and she did indeed have an idyllic childhood. So there's a there's a great tension there, and it's it's really interesting to look at it, not only in the context of Swanage, where you know she spent all her holidays, but also in terms of our attitudes to you know her writing, but also the way she portrayed our country. Mm. So Ina didn't travel very much, uh, no, and, and that's strange considering the rest of the authors in your book travel, right? Some of yes. them do a lot of walking, some of them ride horseback, some go on train. Um, before we kind of jump into those stories, I'm just curious. Um, you'd mentioned somewhere in the book that you were driving through these towns. Was car the principal mode of transport for you? Uh, it's a mixture. I did a lot of walking once I was en route, but I was following all these authors, some of whom indeed drove, some who mm-hmm. took the train, some who rode horses, which I cannot do and refuse to learn to write the book. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say mm, it's a mix, probably 50% train Mm. and then and then car as well but then car was used to get to the you know beginning of the walking point and and then off from there so it was a mixture yeah so no side saddle horseback for you no side saddle horseback (laughs) for me no i did seriously consider learning just so i could properly recreate (laughs) somerville and ross's uh voyage around north wales but i decided not to right you you write in the, the the preface of your book um Footnote started as a rather grandiose attempt to bring modern Britain into focus. So I was wondering if you could uh, unpack this a little bit. What was perhaps yeah. blurry for you or out of focus prior to to doing the research and writing? Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny how one you know, does or doesn't know one's own country. I, I grew up in Kent and Sussex, south of London, and and now I've been living in London for many many years. Um, so there's lots of parts of Britain I just don't know. Um, mm. So there was it was partly just I wanted to get out and see Britain. You know, you read about it all the time, and and there were just incredible. You know, cities. I wanted this, by the way, book to be about cities and towns as well as about the wild and the country. Um, but I, you know, there's loads, of, whole swathes of Britain I just didn't know very well. But also, um, Britain, uh, like America, has been going through pretty turbulent times. And uh, I started to write this um, just, you know, around about the time of the Brexit vote. Uh, and uh, although I managed heroically to get through the entire book without mentioning Brexit once, <laughs> but I, um, uh, it's there. It absolutely permeates the book. Hence, Yanina Blyton and her vision of what Britain should be. Right. Um, and I, um, you know, so it, Britain was a, is in a state of tumult and, and confusion right now. Um, certainly that's what you read. So I just wanted to go out there and see, you know, what were people talking about and what was actually going on. Um, it's, I mean, I suppose it's also worth saying that this is a book, uh, you know, very self-consciously about change. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we read all the time and we see all the time how much everything is changing. You know, it's, it's, this is a time of, of tumult. And uh, I was interested to go and, you know, everyone always says, oh, you know, I went back to where I used to live and everything's changed or, or you wouldn't believe what this place looks like now. So I just wanted to go and um, see for mm-hmm. myself what was going on. 
It's interesting that you brought up uh, Brexit because when I was reading the epigraph of chapter four, and that's the the chapter about Celia Fines. Oh yes, um, I, I'll read it here in a second. But it it kind of you know I'm curious if um, a British person might be able or maybe tempted to read too much into uh, some of the things in this book, and so I'll. I'll use that as a preface. And if you'll allow me, I'll just read that little section here. It's wonder- wonderful. Yes. So it's a quote from Celia Fines. If all persons, both ladies, much more gentlemen, would spend some of their time and journeys to visit their native land and be curious to inform themselves and make observations of the pleasant prospects, good buildings, different produces and manufacturers of each place with the variety of sports and recreations they are adapt to, it would be a sovereign remedy to cure or preserve from these epidemic diseases of vapors, should I add, laziness? It would also form such an idea of England, add much to its glory and esteem in our minds, and cure the evil itch of overvaluing foreign parts. So I'm curious if someone might read too much into this. Yes. <laughs> it's a great quote, isn't it? Uh, well, I include it because it, it made me laugh. Really. <laughs> uh, it's true. Everyone should, I think, travel um, in their native land uh, as well as um, traveling overseas. And because, I mean, one of the things that was interesting on this point, I was reading um, George Orwell's Inside the Whale mm. the other day, uh, and he's talking about Henry Miller. And he's saying that, you know, in, in Henry Miller's novel in the 30s, was it Tropic of Cancer and Tropic right. of Capricorn? Capricorn? Yes. And he's saying um, that Henry Miller's, although it's a great novel, all he can write about, because he's an expat, is other expats and their lives. So he's writing about artists and he's writing about writers. Uh, whereas if he'd chosen to remain in New York and write about that, he would have been able to write about a much wider group of people. Mm. So... Um, you know, there's a serious point here that if you do travel around your own land, you are, you know, automatically more at ease in it. You're able to pick up the nuances that you might miss if you're in a, if you're in another land. So there, you can travel around uh, overseas lands, you know, with your eyes wide open, your ears open. Um, sometimes the language is incomprehensible or whatever it might be. But um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with Celia that. Um, if we're trying to cure the evil itch of uh, <laughs> overvaluing foreign parts. But it is interesting to, to um, visit your own land uh, with the eyes of a foreigner. So one of the things that I did um, just by choosing to follow ancient authors mm-hmm. um, and steeping myself in everything they'd written, it was fascinating because I would read Wilkie Collins's journals and diaries and very precise descriptions of the town's and villages that I was about to visit. Uh, and because I was, I'd read so much of him, the moment I stepped off the train in, you know, Lou, the visit, the, the village in South Cornwall, um, I'd be seeing it with his eyes. And then suddenly, with a rush, you get, you know, modern, contemporary village of Lou. And uh, it would be, it'd be like, it is like stepping off a train in a foreign land once you've been, you know, reading. Or it's about um, you know it's it's like coming home after you've been away for a long time. It's right. it's it's really useful way of seeing your own country again in a different way. So I'm wondering what what if anything came into focus for you? Yes. Um, well, uh, we live in a very beautiful place, 
Britain is beautiful. There's no doubt about it. That came into focus for me. I've, I've been stuck in London a long time, but it's easy to kind of lament. I didn't want this book to be, like, oh God, look at they've ruined this and look at that, look at that. So, um, and it wasn't. You know, you walk around and and it is it is beautiful. Um, the people on the whole, are incredibly friendly. Uh, if you spend as much time as I did hanging around pubs in different parts of Britain, <laughs> it's amazing how warm and welcoming everyone turns out to be, despite what we've been reading about a fractured land and, mm-hmm. you know, a tempest fraying, um, which, of course, we read all the time, um, that we're meant to be divided precisely down the middle. And it's not like that. And, you know, it's true that British people tend to avoid talking politics in the pub, so I wouldn't know. But... Um, yeah, very friendly. Um, there is uh, there is great swathes of uh, Britain that have um, nothing like the American Midwest, but have a monoculture. Um, that's another thing you notice. So you know, it is easy to find in Britain those bucolic little villages tucked away in hills with smoke coming from thatched cottages, uh, and they exist, and it's beautiful. But also, there are swathes of Britain that are just field after field planted with the same thing, and not a tree in sight, and that's that's distressing. And it becomes more so when you visit. Um, and this is why it's interesting to visit with the eyes of, of someone who's lived in the past. Mm. Uh, when you visit the uplands of Wales or, or north of England or Scotland, uh, and you see every hill is denuded, deforested, and, and we've all become accustomed to thinking that's completely natural. But if you know the the, for, the, the, the highlands are, are free of trees, uh, but it's not. If you read your Gerald of Wales or, or indeed Samuel Johnson going around Scotland, who was raging about it, how all the trees were being cut down at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you see a very different land, and you see, um, you know, a kind of tired land at times. Um, then, of course, uh, I was, which is when I get, start following J.B. Priestley and Beryl Bainbridge, because they had a lot. She was traveling in the time of Margaret Thatcher's great squeezing of the north, um, he was traveling in 1933 when the Great Depression was on. And uh, they write a lot about unemployment and deprivation. And, uh, you know, some cities in Britain have, for example, Liverpool, have managed to revive themselves in large part, whereas other cities are, are still right now in a very grim state. Mm. So, yeah, you know, you'd mentioned something about uh, kind of noticing the deforestation and. Uh, noticing kind of the monoculture, as you called it. Um, yes. You know, I'm, I'm thinking here, many of the, the authors that you write about you know, traveled on foot or horseback or train, and it's kind of what we consider now a, a slower form of, of travel, given that we have yeah. airplanes and things. Um, but I'm curious is if whether or not you think that, you know, part of the reasons um, – why or how some of these authors were able to notice that was because of the the modes of transport and because they're yeah. walking through the fields or because they're taking the trains uh, through the country instead of just kind of passing over that. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, uh, and that's why, you know, I, as much as possible, I tried to, to walk because, or indeed to stop as often as possible. Um, yeah. If you're walking, you, you're, it's slow. 
slow travel. Uh, your feet are literally pressed on the ground, and uh, and you're seeing more, you're encountering more, you're you know you're feeling more. Everything you, there's no you can't whiz by and have a conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. If you're in a train, you have the opportunity. Public transport's a chance to connect with people, um, and walking is a way to connect with people. But if being isolated in your car means you don't see or notice anything. So, um, yeah, it's entirely different. And, and Wilkie Collins, who I mentioned before, the author of The Moonstone and so on, who um, he rushed down to Cornwall in 1850 by train. The train only went as far as Plymouth, which is on the very border of Cornwall, far southwest point of England. And then after that, there were no railways in 1850. Uh, and And he makes a point of this. He says, this is the way. This is the only way to see, you know, to see a place and to experience the people. Uh, and he wanted to get there. The reason he rushed there is because the railway was about to be built. And I think, you know, six years later, it more or less had been built. Um, mm. I said in my book, they managed to lay 5,900 miles of railway in about 20 years when it's the railway incredible. was first discovered. It's absolutely staggering. Um, so the whole country was being transformed, and he must have been very aware of it, just the noise and the confusion and the dirt but also just the way it shrunk the country, which, you know, up till then, you know, a village in the, in the next valley was often, you know, as far as you would get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so he wanted to get down there just to see, see a place before it had been affected by mass transit. Mm-hmm. As an editor and a writer, you know, I think you know well that, um, you know, walking and conversations around slow travel, these are becoming, you know, more fashionable. Um, yes. Again, um, especially in, in travel literature, I don't know why. Maybe due to a confluence of climate change, health awareness, and nostalgia for the past, or something. Um, mm. What are, What are your thoughts on on the kind of resurgence of walking and travel literature writ large? Yeah, uh, walking per se, it's it's really good news. And in fact, um, there's the no-fly movement here mm-hmm. in Europe, uh, started in Sweden, of course, um, whereby people are just trying to travel around Europe by train or, or however, or coach, but not flying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's the same thing, or, or down canals. I mean, the, the more we can slow down, the better. Um, just take time to reflect. I mean, obviously, that's a privileged position. Right. And uh, some people just have to get places fast don't they but in terms of travel for kind of experience i think walking is walking in trains i love trains um are the two ways to go um yeah in terms of travel literature generally um it's really exciting time for travel literature there's a lot of it it's quite hard to keep pace you're better placed than me i'm sure to (laughs) you know (laughs) to comment on this i can't keep uh, my head above water (laughs) so much no just so much i said if any they'd slow down for a second um but um yeah they're just there's really different interesting different strands you know travel memoir is obviously a big thing at the moment i think um travel in the age of climate chaos is for me, the most interesting thing, um, not just in the way you're traveling, but you know, what, what you can see and, and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of what I'd say, I don't know, this is not the best way of expressing, but it's so, you know, real travel in the sense that it's, there's a lot of travel writing, which is, is not actually describing what's in front of the writer's nose. It, the writers often living in their head or, or just, um, writing down their preconceptions, mm-hmm. um, Whereas, you know, travel, I deliberately in footnotes, 
I didn't, as I said, want to just write about, although I'm very interested, I didn't just want to write about the wild or, or about forests of Britain. I wanted to write about um, Birmingham and Bradford and so on. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think there needs to be, you know, in, term, in light of the climate crisis and just in terms of everything else that's happening, you know, the great sort of extinctions that are happening at the moment and the migrations of people and and species, you know, the need, it, it, there's a kind of um, a requirement. Uh, I would about to say duty. It's not a duty, is it? Uh, people can write what they like, but um, they would be very good if, if people, you know, acknowledged what's happening mm-hmm. uh, when they're writing their travel books and didn't just um, sink into some kind of preconceptions because the world has changed uh, beyond recognition in most places. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned uh, travel memoir, and uh, your book is up for the Edward Stanford uh, Award for travel memoir. Yes. And um, I was wondering how you saw this book. Do you see this book as, first and foremost, a memoir, or do you see this as something else? No, I didn't see it as a memoir. I did, it's true, I've got, um, you know, I'm in the book. Right. right. Uh, and I'm not, I've, I've done, I'm not entirely easy about um travel memoir because uh you know i'm a slightly unassuming person by nature so <laughs> i sort of peek around the corner more than you know, stride of center stage uh but um well i'm obviously really flattered and excited to be on the short list mm-hmm. but uh, i didn't see the book as travel memoir but i did deliberately you know i was what i felt i was doing was writing a series of literary biographies that would shed light on a our history and b our you know what is there now in Britain. So, you know, that was, as I said, it was a slightly grandiose attempt. So I didn't, you know, it was, it was ambitious. Um, my appearances in the book are sort of, um, ways I felt of highlighting the person I'm already writing, writing about. I'm writing about J.B. Priestley, but it's, you know, quite something will occur to me that might shed extra light on him by, you know, writing about myself. Um, plus, um, because he's writing, you know, his reactions or all of the writers are their reactions to who they meet and what they see. That's exactly what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to, I was sort of juggling it. I wanted, I suppose in my mind, I had about 40%, you know, about the authors and their books or letters and about 60% about what you can see now mm-hmm. in Britain. There was, I don't know if it actually ended up, it's probably ended up being a bit more now and a bit less then in the end. Um, but I didn't see it as a memoir. I don't want to put anyone off, any judges off from <laughs> the less awarding me this prize. But uh, this, this no, will I come didn't. out after they they announce it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting no. that you mentioned that though, because you know the the scenes where in the book where you're front and center, you do appear as a nice counterpoint in terms of contrast between the past and the present. You, know, you make commentary on how. Uh, some of these authors might have seen the cities in which they're visiting or living compared to what you're seeing and experiencing now. So you make a nice kind of uh, comparison or contrast to, to those. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And I was, you know, because I was seeing things with fresh eyes because I'd been, as I say, steeped in their work. And that's exactly what I was trying to bring bring out. And uh, and that's why I'm in there as well. But also I, I find it hard to resist at times an easy joke or or an aside. <laughs> so I just, um, you know, I get terrible vertigo. I'm not one of these rugged travelers. And um, 
I got the most horrifying vertigo on in Tintagel Castle in Cornwall and also on Snowdon when I went up to Snowdon um, following these two Victorian ladies who'd gone up in full kind of, you know, full length skirts and, you know, uncomfortable shoes. They'd sauntered up to the top of Snowdon and I was struggling in their <laughs> wake like this. But uh, uh, that also, you know, that helps to sort of bring the whole thing to life. I, was, I really, um, you know, I loved the authors I followed. I suppose I want to stress that. They're in their different ways. Even even Ian Blyton, who's an absolute pain uh, and has, you know, ruined many people's lives. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I, I loved them all. And it's just it, – so I did feel I was with them when I was traveling. Mm-hmm. And I felt their presence, um, which also helped. When I – you know, sometimes if you're sitting watching modern Britain and you've got the kind of uh, Beryl Bainbridge on your shoulder – and you can imagine what she would make of it 40 years on or something. It's, it's interesting. Mm. It's a very different perspective. So apart from the familiarity you had with uh, all of the authors, um, what to what extent were you familiar with the cities that you were visiting? Uh, you'd mentioned uh, you studied in Edinburgh. Yes. Uh, but apart <clears throat> from that, um, were these cities that you traveled to previously or were they new? Uh. A mixture, really, but I didn't know uh, Liverpool at all. Um, I knew Birmingham a little bit. Uh, Bradford I'd never been to. Uh, Newcastle I knew a tiny, tiny bit. So, no, in the main, I, I'm really, I realised how badly travelled I was in terms of, you know, major British cities. I, um, it was an absolute thrill. And I didn't know the the, the Highlands. You know, I'd been to Sky once before, but... But I didn't know that. So, um, I mean, Bradford was an eye-opener. Birmingham, absolutely. Um, In what way? Well, both of them. I mean, Bradford in very different ways. Birmingham, I had an absolutely brilliant time in Birmingham. It was, it's, it's got a bad reputation. It's Britain's second city, and it's um, always had a reputation for being a kind of unruly sprawl uh, with roads driven into the middle and there's the you know, Spaghetti Junction is this famous motorway junction there. And so it's, you know, it's always meant to be. And J.B. Priestley and Beryl Bainbridge who both go there are incredibly rude about the place. Um, whereas I went, you know, again, expecting um, one thing, mm. um, this this rather gloomy, depressing place. It's not like that at all. It's great. And it's full of life and vigor. And uh, it's true. They keep knocking it down and starting again. And they haven't quite figured out quite how to do it yet. But um there's an energy to it which is exciting it's a big student city which obviously helps mm-hmm. um yeah i got absolutely carried away i, d- I took up smoking again in birmingham after 27 <laughs> years <laughs> i was having such a good time it was also jb J. Priestley and beryl bainbridge are both huge smokers if you if you look at um beryl bainbridge made a series of tv programs about traveling around britain in 83 and uh, she's smoking everywhere in the restaurants, <laughs> in the hospitals, and absolutely all over the place. It's shocking now, but in those it was those days, it was just what you did. So yeah, Birmingham was a revelation. Bradford, in another way, was was depressing um, because it's still you know suffering. It's got still got very very high unemployment rates and mm. is struggling. The centre of Bradford is struggling. So that was true. But of course, they've had a huge amount of immigration from South Asia. Um, their um, Pakistani origin people mostly, and uh, that's interesting because J.B. Priestley writes about immigration in the 1930s. Uh, there was a big German Jewish community in Bradford, which is where he grew up, and he goes back there in 1933, having not been back there since 1918. And um, 
he writes the most moving um, account of the benefits of immigration um, because in the intervening years from 1918 to 1933, almost all the German Jews have left um, or changed their names. But, you know, because of the First World War, being German was not popular. And then it's, he's, he laments their loss and, uh, and says what we all lose when we don't embrace immigration. So that was really interesting to read that in the context of Bradford, which has had, you know, it's difficulties around that at times, but it was, it was heartening to read him, in fact. Mm. So imagine that I'm coming to England. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> I've been to London once already. And based on your travels, uh, following in the footsteps of these authors, where might you recommend that I go outside of London to see a village, city? Okay. Um, nice question. I, ha I have uh, Birmingham on my list. I want to go smoke. Okay, cigarettes. Birmingham. Well, it's, it's, Birmingham is gritty, <laughs> but has an energy, as I say, and you know, it's got the most amazing new library. Um, in terms of old English city, where you want that sort of vibe, the Lincoln is interesting because it's got the world's most beautiful cathedrals on top of a hill. And um, and it's still got a sort of quite a nice energy on the streets. Uh, that's old, old English town or city. Um, more vibrant modern city, Birmingham, certainly Newcastle in the northeast is, is fabulous. And uh, everyone seems to love Newcastle. It's got, um, again, it's got a sort of wild nightlife. Um, but also it's got some beautiful old Georgian buildings there. Um, Cornwall. For a little English village, um, can't really be beaten. Those little fishing villages that, are, that lie in the north and south coast of Cornwall, uh, absolutely incredible. I went to a place called Lamorna Cove, which not many people go to, which is in fact where Ithel Cahoon, the surrealist painter, lived. And she wrote a book called Living Stones, um, which is an account of her time living there. And she actually complains a lot about how there are too many tourists but if you go there now you wouldn't think there were but it's just she was used to no tourists and then suddenly there were 10 and now there's probably 100 um that's beautiful Lamorna cove is is well worth going to but any of those little cornish villages wales i could go on forever i mean wales <laughs> again has a beautiful coastline um yes very good we're um kind of approaching time here and i was Wondering if you could uh, read a short passage from the book for us, maybe a sure. paragraph or two, and uh, if you could let us know what page you're you're looking at. This is uh, this is Cornwall. I thought Cahoon uh, living in Cornwall, and I've just been talking about how John Betjeman, the British poet, who wrote the Shell Guide to Cornwall um, in 1933, and then again in 1964, he updates it and goes on and on about how the entire place has been ruined by, um, you know, too much tourism. So this is about shifting baseline syndrome, but also about nostalgia. It is page, hang on, 81. Ithel Cahoon, renting a shack further down the coast, wrote in 1957, I've never spent a whole year at Vow Cave, and I'm sorry now that I did not do so before Lamorna became, during the summer months, uninhabitable. And I remember my own first Cornish holiday, aged eight, in 1971, when the sun blazed and the surf rolled, and we had miles of golden sandy beaches all to ourselves, didn't we? 
I certainly remember my first trip to the Mediterranean a couple of years later. We were spending 10 days in the hills of Provence, not far from Mont Ventoux, and we had been promised a day at the seaside, even though my father, my kind, gentle, but he'd be the first to admit somewhat gloomy father, explained that there was almost no point in going, what with the insufferable crowds and the rank pollution, discarded picnics and plastics and French effluent, and the fact that the once pristine Mediterranean Sea, the wine-dark sea of Homer and Dumas and Matisse, had been poisoned and blighted with oil spills and emptied, dragged clean of all its teeming fish and every last scrap of sea life. And I remember heading south in our white Triumph 2000 estate, with the cicadas shrieking at the open windows from the hot, scented hills, and how we surged over the last rise, and there, laid out in front of us, was a vision of such potent beauty, the light leaping from the radiant sea, the almost empty beach glittering with ochre and gold, that we were all briefly struck dumb. And then we were seized, seized with laughter, hysterical from the car journey. My mother, too, overcome with wonder and joy to see this heart-stopping, undeniable beauty. And the look on my father's face, amusement, disappointment, as he started to explain and then quickly stopped, that what we think we can see is not the same as what there is. I'm not saying my father was wrong. In fact, and alas, Today, the Mediterranean is sicker and emptier than ever before, and still undeniably blue and lovely. And Britain's own seas and shoreline, the once seethed with whales, walruses, dolphins, pilchards and puffins, are silent and sodden with invisible plastics. We all understand this in theory, but we are also having to contend with something known to conservationists as shifting baseline syndrome, the bewildering and endless realignment of what constitutes normal, from Wilkie to Betjemand, from Eithel to us, so that we can no longer remember or have no first-hand knowledge of what it was like to see butterflies thick in the meadows and starfish in every rock pool. We are rightly suspicious of our golden childhood memories, but none of us ever lives long enough to notice that the tap of life is being screwed shut. When Wilkie was here in Kynance Cove, he was alone in August, apart from his friend Henry sketching on the cliffs and his indefatigable guide. And now here we are in April, and there are 400 vehicles in the car park and cruise ships disgorging tourists into the bay. I'm not saying that's wrong. Who are we to say who should or should not be enjoying this extraordinary cove with its rainbow waves and shimmering rocks? Not John Betjeman, let's hope, nor me. Back in Wilkes' time, most people had to work hard just to scrape by. But there's no avoiding the fact that there are an awful lot of us these days, on the move and keeping busy, scurrying up and down the land, nosing along the coast, looking for a lost lane or a lonely beach, and all the while buying and using and accumulating and shedding an unfeasible amount of stuff. Imagine what this beautiful cove was like 150 years ago. And be honest, wouldn't you rather have it all to yourself, maybe you and a few others, as Wilkie once did? Then again, who wouldn't? I mean... I know I would. Hmm. Thank you for that. It's a pleasure. That will, uh, the, those words speak for themselves. Yes, the, I hope so. Audience to, to think about that um, as they do. Can you let us know where we can find you online, your perhaps Twitter handle and your website? I'm on Twitter and I'm at P Fines. Uh, for the American audience, could you spell your last name? <laughs> yes, it's F for Fred, I E. N-N for nothing, E-S for sugar. Very good. And your website? Uh, I'm peterfines.com. Very good. So what's next for you? Well, I'm writing a book. The next book is set in Greece, and it's around the Greek myths. I'm going 
off to Greece to see what remains of the Greek myths and where you can actually see them. And I'm going to try and see if they've got any message for us in terms of our overwhelming climate crisis and other catastrophes. Well, wonderful. I wish you had success with the writing of that book and we'd love to have you back on when uh, that's published. That'd be a pleasure. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at Patreon.com forward slash TravelWritingWorld. Thanks for your support.